Okay, I know the title sounds a little bit, comes off a little bit cheesy, on eagle's wings, like a song in pop culture, but it is actually a quote in this passage. Verse 4 reads, For you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Perhaps there are no more intimate words than these spoken uh, to the people of God. Words that will be remembered and celebrated uh, throughout Jewish history, but also in, even to the Christian Bible itself aspect of the New Covenant. Uh, as this Old Covenant church becomes the New Covenant church, these words will be remembered and even the context of these words. The statement you see is reminiscent and, of course, metaphorical about the relation of God to his church. In this context, the Old Testament church of Israel, those called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy city. So much so today as well. What does it mean that we, in our relationship with God as his church, is described in such intimate ways as on Ingle's wings being brought to God himself. In the context of the Old Testament church, our text is one again of the great text. But 1 Peter 2, we've heard it said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a paraphrase, literally, of this passage. And so we're going to, Look at this great passage. It's a passage which, which speaks into our, our core relationship with God. It's a passage that will be preached in a manner, I think, particularly accessible to our children. And I hope you children will be listening. As you do listen, I want to remind you, uh, if you went to page 11 on our uh, page, that there's a little note-taking place. Kids, there's going to be a lot of metaphor or images here with the eagles and all, and you could begin to think about that if you wanted to use your bulletin. But, um, but there also is a, tech, a number here that you can text, those of you who are, anyone who has a phone with text capacity here. And we encourage you to do it. It's an active listening thing to text this, 203-800-7689, with your thoughts and or your questions. And I will get back with you within three days. We may even get to it tomorrow, uh, this morning uh, when we go downstairs in our sermon discussion. So take advantage of that. It's something we're going to be doing for the rest of the time. But before we go into the text, let's, let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's striking how intimate you are with us. It's contrary, we must confess, to our natural disposition towards you, wherein often we think of you as a great and holy and other God who is always mad at us or is always... Uh, distance from us, or any other type of thing that we hear so many give testimony to in their experience of religion. And we're sad that that's the experience of some people's religion, that a, a God who, who, who somehow is, is amiss. And so, Father, would you redefine the disposition of the relationship between you, our God, and us, your people, especially with your church. And would you help us to understand how that would set us free 
and ways to hear you, really hear you, to trust what we hear, and to act upon it, to obey. Lord, come. For your glory, we say in Christ's name, amen. Well, to appreciate this amazing metaphor, we obviously have to put it into the context of Exodus here. And in chapters 1 through 18 in Exodus, just a very brief uh, summary here, the accomplishments of God uh, in the salvation that he is bringing and has brought Israel from Egypt is just unparalleled. It's truly epic. And we see it in epical kinds of cinematography and everything. These early chapters tell the story of God redeeming Israel, of course, from Egypt. And a great and, yes, epic event But to be sure, Exodus is presented in the Bible as the sequel to Genesis. That's important. As the continuing story that began with even Adam and Eve and a promise to them, based on their faith in the seed of this woman who would take away the curse that they had brought upon the world, a promise to them to be their God and to be the people that would come after them as God by faith. Much of the history is told, then, with a view towards preparing God's chosen people for the establishment of a new nation under priestly and kingly and prophetic traditions or institutions handed down by God through Moses. Already we have seen, for instance, the establishment of a priestly altar. And in chapter 18, we've seen the establishment of a kingly government through elders. Already, we see, even in this passage, a convening of the elders. It's presbytery time. Truly, that's what it is. If you were to use the Greek word for this Hebrew word, it would be that word. That they assembled as presbyters in order to hear the word of God from Moses as are to bring it into the congregation and the people's lives. We see in this very early, early era, All the seeds that make for our religion today. We are one church. Old and new covenant to be sure, but one people. This is our family story. If you're sitting in this room and if you're a Christian. And it's a story of God intervening over and over again. Intervening with great promises of affection and love and hope for his people. A God who would save them from themselves and from the many that they would attach themselves that would turn against them. Already, in the book of Genesis, we've seen it over and over. A sovereign God, but a merciful God. And so this history is told with this particular view towards this intended inclusion, especially of the nations. According to the covenant with Abraham, for instance, in chapter 18, Moses' reunion with Jethro and being represented with Jethro himself being a representative of the Gentiles. It's all there, the promise that began with Eden. Unfulfilled, to be sure, as of yet, but a promise being fulfilled. And so this concluding part, of that concludes more or less verses chapters 1 through 18, part 1 of Exodus. That brings us to this next major section, which is chapter 19 through 24. Here we have the establishment of this holy and priestly kingdom or city of God. We're told the Lord had liberated Israel from bondage in Egypt, but now he will adopt the nation into a special 
relationship with himself. That's where we turn right now. Now, in the formation of a new people, God would therefore establish them upon his word, his sacraments, and his government. Sound familiar? Upon this prophetic and priestly and kingly institution that he was establishing. There would be very clear foundations for this, a foundation that was based on the cornerstone teaching of God through Moses to this nation. Moses became a type of cornerstone, you could say, for this great new temple of God, this city of God, the founder. Humanly speaking, a founder, if you will, the significance of Moses cannot be overstated. We'll see later that that the whole of Old Testament wants to portray Christ as the great ultimate Moses of God, who does what even Moses fails to accomplish. For you'll remember that Moses, if you know the story, will never make it himself into the promised land. He falls short. Even Moses falls short and can't ascend into that promised land without yet a mediator. A mediator that is promised by the prophets, of course, that will get us to Christ. So that's sort of the big picture here, which brings us then to our passage itself in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Now, let's look at it carefully, just again to appreciate the significance. In verse 1, it is remembered how around three months after they had left Egypt, somewhere it's speculated around May to June, Following this great redemption of Israel from Egypt, the Israelites arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, or Horeb. Very significantly, the observation is stated in verse 1 in a way that intends to link the promise made by God in Exodus 3 to the fulfillment of that promise in Exodus 19. Let me read Exodus 3, verse 12. Back then, when God was about to save Israel, he says, he said, I will be with you. That's significant. We underestimate that promise. Throughout redemptive history, there's never been a time where there could be a salvation, where there could be any life itself, starting from creation, without God's presence. You see, this is more than a law-giving promise, though that law helps us to understand the way in which we benefit from his presence. That's key. So there's a covenantal history to that mountain. He once met with God on Mount Horeb in chapter 3, and he has now returned to him and the recently redeemed Israel of God. This mountain is significant. It is portrayed as a great temple mount, as it was customary even in the ancient of days, that the temple of gods were on great mountains. And here we have a great mountain. A little bit more about Mount Horeb. You see, Mount Horeb is the mountain of which the book of Deuteronomy in the Hebrew Bible states that the Ten Commandments, we'll see it coming up in chapter 20, for instance, were given to Moses by God. It is described in two places, Exodus 3, 1 Kings 19, as the, quote, mountain of God. You see, that's significant. His abiding place. Better, though, his mediatorial abiding place. A means through which God could be with his people in this mediated way that is going to be constructed through the prophet, priestly, kingly community of God. 
It's all the way back there, this idea of the church being an essential element to salvation, you see. I know, I won't go off on that's not the point of the sermon today, but it, it is the question of our day. And let me just make it clear. We talked about this at a wonderful time with many of you women this, this Friday and in your theology class. I'm so impressed with you and your hunger for the Word of God. Such a great time for me. I hope you know that. And, um, but we talked about this, and it's, and it's very important. This is a passage I would turn to, one of the early passages, all the way back here, where it could be said that, that truly the church, as a temple of God, called that, of course, in, in, in New Covenant terms as well, this church is the Mount Harab of God, the, the city of God. Every gospel-believing church is built upon a very careful foundation given to us by Moses, oops, Christ, through the apostles. You see how we're going? It's all the same history. This is our people. This is our beginning right here. And what's crucial here is the emphasis on presence. And of course, if God is present, how, in it, how then can he be present? How are we then to live in that presence and benefit by that presence? And that's exactly what begins in chapter 19. That's what invokes even the law of God, a law which is to help us be happy in his presence, to experience the fullness of his presence. I want you to think about law very differently, in other words. When you, distract, when you, when you, you extract the law from, from the presence of God, it becomes a cold legal document. Forensics. And in this forensics, it's this idea that there, there are rules, and if you don't obey the rules, you get zapped. And if you do, you get a little cookie. And that's somehow to diminish the, the import of this. It's rather there is a being. He is a real being, God. A person. Albeit a divine person, not a temporal person. A person who who is morality, who is holiness, who is justice, who is mercy, love, etc. And out of that nature of his being, he has opinions. He has laws of how life is good. It's, it's all driven, though, because of God's hunger to be intimate with you. That's what's amazing when this passage, when you think about a hunger to be intimate with you, and here's how we can be close. Not in a conditional sense like some tit for tat, but in a conditional sense for this is the nature of my being, a being that can only inhabitate that which is being in sympathy with my being. I mean, there are many illustrations, you know. We even contextualize ourselves uh, to our children, let's say, or to our parents, or to friends, or loved ones, etc. How is it that we can be intimate with this person many times means that you have to come together in some manner, a way compatible to one another. That's the spirit of this passage here. And so we have this amazing journey, again, to this great mountain. And in this, the specific, while the specific location of this biblical Mount Sinai continues to be uncertain, and it's just not of a concern for us here, it exists. What we do know is that the fledgling new nation will stay at Mount Sinai now for 11 months. You'll read about all the way up through Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. 
It will take the writer 59 chapters to describe the record of their experience at this amazing temple church location of God. A temple church location that will establish a, a foundation, a framework, a, a antitype for the type that is to come, if you will, in the church of Jesus Christ. And it concerns the great meaning of this episode of Mount Sinai then, that our passage concerns itself, these eight verses. Do you begin to get the significance? That's all I'm doing. Do you see how significant this verse is? These verses would be good to memorize as our story, as an epical moment in our story. And oh, would they be a beautiful thing to memorize because they would reframe and think your relationship with God deeply if you meditate upon it. In verses 1 and 2, we hear the arrival of Moses with the Israelites and his setting up a camp. In verses 3 through 6, Moses, the first of many, ascents up into the heaven of God. And then we hear, of course, these observations which we're going to divide into three within a response. But before I go there again to this first point, this first trip of Moses up the mountain of God is at the very heart of the Pentateuch. It contains the classic expression of the nature and purpose of the theocratic covenant that God is making with us, his church. Again, as noted earlier, it summarily describes the very identity and purpose of the church of Jesus Christ as it's foreshadowed in this city of God, mosaic community. One scholar says it this way, without doubt, Exodus 19 is the most theologically significant text in the whole Bible. For it is the linchpin between the patriarchal promises of the sonship of Israel and the Sinaitic covenant, whereby Israel became the servant nation of Yahweh, anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. Wow, are you listening? That's my first point. Really listen. For we see then that the words are given not just to Moses, but to the house of Jacob, the sons of Israel. Moses then being the prophetic voice or conduit that mediates the voice of God into the vernacular of the people. The Gospels, as I said, present Jesus in the same way as both the mediatorial executor of our salvation, the one who executes it for us. You think of his life and his death and his resurrection and all that went into that. But we also see very carefully Christ being described as our lawgiver, as the cornerstone, language reminiscent of this. And so with that significance, I want to give you three take-homes, three observations from this text. What's the take-home then? How does this define you and me and our relationship with God as his church today? Three things. Concerning God's disposition towards us. Concerning our disposition towards God. Concerning our mission as unto God. If you're taking notes. First observation may be the most important. It concerns God's disposition towards us, his church. Those who are in relation to God. Notice verse 4. Remember, he starts out. Remember. Now, whatever else is going on to be said, going to be said here, this is significant. For it is for the very credibility of what's about to be said is predicated upon the historical reality of God's acts in history. This is not a sentimental pursuit. This is not some 
sentimental platitude that we come up with to make us feel better. Remember the history. Remember these acts of salvific history. As a Christian, you need to know that. That your faith is not based on mere conjecture, more philosophical ruminations. It's not based on some person that, that gets some revelation from God and just starts writing it out. It starts with God acting historically, temporally, into our time and space. This is a historically verified and vindicated kind of redemptive story. So remember, they are to think back as to what God has already done. And they would have known. They were there. They were there. This whole thing would be nonsensical to the Israel people. Except that they were there. They experienced and witnessed the plagues. They experienced the Red Sea. They saw the chariots drowning. They were there. So he starts off not with avoiding history, in fact, but rather remembering historical fact to a people who would remember it and validate it. Much like we see in the New Testament where so much of our salvation is is vindicated. Remember the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts is told such that over 400 witnesses affirm the testimony of the apostles. Yes, I was there. I saw it. I saw this man who was dead walking around afterwards for 40 days. People who would have later died to say that they saw it. How much more validation do we need that this is real, this is true? This isn't like any old religion with some really cool poetic poetry or philosophical ruminations. This is fact-based salvation. Remember. But then we're to ask, well, remember what? Now, the assumption is you know what historical facts. And so what does he do? This is where it gets beautiful. Remember that your relationship with God is like what you would know to be true because you've lived this story. This makes you tear up. Just remember what you experienced when you experienced these these actions of God in your life. And what does he say? How you yourselves, now that is, that's a, a construction in the Hebrew that wants to really emphasize you, you know it. You yourselves, intimately, you, your person, your very being, you know. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Such intimacy. Bore you. Bore your burdens. Bore your your salvation. Took it upon myself to nurture and care and everything for you. On eagles' wings. Now, do you know anything about eagles and their young? Because if you don't, this is totally just going right over your head. In fact, my, my, my image of eagles, since we have at least hawks all around our houses, I don't really like them very much. They have this screeching sound. They have this bill that's made to kill my pigeons, and I don't like them killing my pigeons. And they seem to be mean and aggressive. 
tongs on their feet. Is that your image of an eagle? And so I bore you on eagle's wings, go, well, do you know anything about eagles and their young? Well, let me just tell you, my wife does. And dare you ask her, you will discover a twinkle in her eyes and may be listening for quite a while. I can tell you that because, well, since February, I've been listening to it almost on a weekly basis. Now, I'm not lying. Almost. Not quite, Lisa. Maybe it hasn't been that much, but it's been close. You see, Lisa's involved. She's a school teacher. And she's involved with her uh, fifth grade project that, that I guess fifth graders, Lisa, and people older and younger all over the nation are involved with. This is a nationwide, worldwide event that's going on. And it's been lasting from February all the way through June, wherein by live video cam, her class with classes all around America and the world carefully follow the intimate viewings in HD live streaming of two eagles, Mr. President and First Lady is their name, nurturing from beginning to end their two young eaglets, uh, technically called D.C., Washington, D.C. It's there in a conservatory near Washington there. D.C. 4 and D.C. 5. Of course, uh, there was a nationwide classroom nomination process and then vote, and they were named Honor and Glory. Now, I confess that when Lisa would come home talking about it all, well, I kind of just, you know, I confess I do it sometimes, you know, a kind of a half-open ear while I'm still listening to whatever I'm doing, or kind of humoring. It just, you know, it, it sounded cute to me, I confess. But it was clearly moving to her. Mostly the incredible and meticulous attention both the father and the mother eagles gave to a complete and wholly egalitarian nurture of their young. And so as the year began to go, I can't remember when, Lisa, but at some point she would, I think it was in a car or something when we were going somewhere, but she said, you just got to look at this. And I was honestly surprised by how it moved me. It was surprising. It, it, was, it, was, it was the gentleness of these birds. You know, the way they would, their beak, that, that yellow beak would, would just gently move they're young, to a place of safety in the nest or something like that. And so here's some of the scenes that, some of which I've seen with her, some of I haven't. But of course it starts with the construction of this massive fort. That's what it is, it's a fort. I mean, incredible, heavy, huge, you've seen it I'm sure, around New Haven, fortress of a home for their young. I mean, these young, I mean, and I'm thinking, who's going to attack these things? they got eagles for parents, for God's sake. Overkill galore. But man, they spare no wood to take care of that fort. And then the way they take turns sitting on their eggs. One scene that she describes to me was a scene when it was just miserable outside, cold, freezing, snow, sleet, gross, cold, miserable day. The mother is sitting on the eggs, and the father keeps coming down, and gently, and I saw it, gently just moves her little body. It's my turn, honey. 
And that she's just, I'm not leaving these eggs. It's my turn, honey, you know. And it just goes on, and finally, you know, she gives in. But it was amazing how, how they worked together in this intimate and beautiful and most gentle of manners to care for those eggs, to give her a break, only later to get success. And then there's another scene, and this is the one that actually got me uh, the most. It was really, really, really hot now. This is not but about a month or so ago. And, and now they're born. They're, they're out of the eggs. And uh, it was just, this hot sun was just scorching down on the thing. And so you saw this, this, I don't know which it was, father or mother, but the father or mother would continually position itself around this nest to make sure that they were not in the sun. When it rains, putting a, a wing over them to protect them from the wane. I mean, this is real stuff. This is what these animals do. As got older, too big, and both young and parents, it looked like uh, uh, the parents weren't with them anymore. You would look at the thing now, and they were kind of big, overflowing this, this nest, and, and there was no parents. Oh, until you'd see this, and these tongs come down into the thing, and then very gently the beak would come into the scene and give them a fish. They were always there, providing, caring, sitting up on a limb right above, evidently. Always there, never, ever leaving them. You see, I'm not just fabricating this stuff. This is real nature. God says, you know what it's like for me to be your God? It's like being an eagle with its young. And these people who are grand outdoorsman type people would have known what that meant. You see, in the Old Testament, elsewhere, as birds that are particularly noted for their care for their weak and their young, they're particularly noted for that all throughout the scripture. The image of the eagle in verse 4 is based on the fact that eagles, when an offspring learns to fly or tries to learn to fly, they will literally catch them on its wings when they fall. I didn't get to see that, but that's what they're known to do. Deuteronomy 32.10 says it this way, He sustains him in a desert land, and a howling wilderness waste. He shielded them and cared for them and guarded him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings and takes them up and bears them aloft on its pinions. That's the Bible interpreting what God is meaning here when he says, I bore you on as on eagles' wings. God's deliverance of Israel is compared to an eagle swooping down to hover over its young and carrying them off to safety. Eagles are also fierce, as we mentioned, birds of prey. As in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and Jeremiah chapter 4 and 48 and 49. But over and over again, these verses describe the great eagle who comes in as a bird of prey and attacks the attackers of their young. Look, he comes like a cloud, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Say, the enemies of God, when God protects his apple of his eye, his church, from evil. 
as in to depict God's fury against the Egyptians as well. You see, in both ways, therefore, Israel, then and now, is to remember just how great of compassion and love and nurture and deep, intimate love God has for you yourself, in the words of the Hebrew. The Bible goes to great extremes to describe the intimate love of God for his covenant people, the church. You are more loved CPC and other gospel-believing churches than you could ever possibly imagine. So much so that the Lord goes to great extremes to give you these metaphors and these images from nature and elsewhere to say it to you, that you would believe it and feel it and experience it. Israel of God, as to your relationship to God, do you understand God's disposition towards you? How would it mean, what would it mean for you going forward with God if you understood this metaphor? Really, think about that. How would that change? What, what, what's going on in your mind? Are you running from him? Are you running to him? Are you desiring to know him or are you afraid to know him? Would you listen to him? Or are you afraid to listen to him? Would you let his beat come into your life? Would, he let him, would you let him put his wing over your, your being? Would you fling yourself upon his mercy and say, God, mercy, I want you? Or would you run away from him as if he's a mean and cruel and, and legalistic God? How would, you, how would this change your orientation, in other words, to God? your emotions to God, your confidence in God. That brings us now to observation number two, verse five. It concerns our disposition towards God, one of faith and trust. He says, verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Oh my God, stuff is getting syrupy. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Let me read that again. If If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. There's a lot here, starting with this now therefore. Based on what God has just revealed and said concerning his disposition towards you, one of great love and compassion, etc., you then would consider your disposition in response to God. What would it be? Well, the promise is clear. What's the purpose of this next verse? Because it's all too true and sad that even given who God is, many don't experience the happiness of that. Are you happy in Jesus? Look what he says. The goal of this command is is not just abstract laws. You shall be my treasured possession. Metaphor number two. That treasure of all treasures, in other words. Note what he says. All the earth is mine. In other words, I have all the treasures in the world. I've got all the treasures of the world. But you, you church, you are my treasure of treasures. He just, love is just oozing here. We're at Mount Sinai, remember? 
What was your image of Mount Sinai? All the earth is mine, my treasure. You can't be, you can't experience, though, my, my love for you, my, my disposition that you are my treasure, except that you would trust me, that you would listen to me, and you would act upon that trust. And that's exactly what happens here. It's the if-then sequence. To experience the relation with God, one must relate to God as he is. God can't cease being God. You know, if, if, if you treat some, let's say, hypothetically, a person's, you know, uh, is, is seeking to love you and care for you and, and, and nurture you. But if you treat them like your enemy and fear them and don't listen to them and don't act upon their gifts, etc., and teachings, etc., then you're not experiencing the happiness of this person's love for you. There's a sense in which we must submit to love. We must submit to the mercy and the compassion. And you can't see God's law as anything but love. That's the key here. I'm trying to wrap this narrative around that very carefully as it is here. I mean, it's just amazing how many times throughout Old Testament history, even into the New, that I love the law of God. Because the word law now has this Western meaning, but think of it as, as the presence-invoking teachings of God. And so I love this idea. If only you would... And he goes on and says this word, this very important word, Shema. Used twice here, Shema. That's a really big word in Hebrew. Unfortunately, when it's tried to be, when it's translated into English, you really don't get the sense of this word. Often, it will get one part of the sense. Maybe the word you heard, I can't remember what it was translated there, is, is obey. But really, it's the word, and it's very carefully constructed this way, to combine these grammatical uses of the same word to being emphasized in the two uses that are here in this verse in a way that would say, if only, and I'll, here's my paraphrase of the Hebrew here, if only you would listen, trust me. And just act upon that trust. Obey. Hear it again. Hear, trust, and obey. Hear, trust, and obey. Y'all know the song, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And I can't believe you let me do that alone. I will never forgive you for that. I will never forgive you for that. You really let me down. Usually you jump in there and you feel my pain. You didn't do it that time. Will you do it this time? Kids, would you help me out? This is for you, okay? Trust and obey, for there are no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Now, if I could do it uh, uh, exegetically correct, it'd be, hear, trust, and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to hear, trust, and obey. Okay, that's the it. But here's what I want you to do. I really want you to sing that song over and over and over and over and over and over and over again this week. Sing it with your kids. Because these, in the context of this thing here, 
This is what it means to flourish with God. To take the time, if you're not taking the time first, to hear Him. Listen to Him. Slow down. Read His Word slowly. We are so busy, 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 busy. This is kind of part two of last week's sermon a little bit. Our kids are so busy, 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 busy. Kids, listen to God. Go and pray to Him often. Read His Scripture often. But listen to the Scripture. Don't read it and, 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 and mem- just memorize it. Memorizing isn't listening. It's a good way to help you slow down. So good, memorize. But you're not listening yet. You know, we've gotten so into testing culture, especially I think our children, and we came out of that, we achieved through that, we learned how to be tested and to satisfy test and test and test and test. You know, you can be tested to your blue in the face, you had not heard a word of it yet. Testing is something that happens internal. I mean, I'm sorry, hearing. Hear him, listen to him. Think about what he's saying to you. In all of his teachings, Consider God's disposition to you and how much he loves you, really, as proven by the facts of history. Even your own personal history, perhaps, you have some testimonies to that effect. Listen to what he tells us and ask the question before I react to it and consider it like a rule, and we all hate rules, consider it as more of a love language. I want you near me. Would you, would you because I can't, I, would you just, Give this thing up so you can be near me. You know, could you just put aside something over here for a while so we can be close together? Could you just turn off the TV? I could hear that, you know. Probably more wives say that to their husbands. I don't know. I don't know. But could you just turn off that TV so we can talk? It's that kind of thing. A spouse who's yearning intimacy with you. A husband who's yearning intimacy with you. That's what God's doing here. Would you just listen and trust it? Trust me, I would never, ever, children, listen to this. This eagle who loves you has proven they will never, he will never, ever, ever, ever give you a rule or a law that is intended to hurt you. It may sometimes feel hard, and it may sometimes mean delayed gratification, delayed whatever, but it will always make you flourish. It's all love, but especially it's about intimacy, drawing you close so you can be and act together with God. He can't act with you when it's wrong. He can't stop being God. He wants to act with you and be with you. And so there's this amazing thing here, this promise to be God's treasure. Now, therefore, if you will hear such as to act upon my voice, You are my treasure. You will then, and that's why I like that, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Now, again, I I was way too big for my britches for most of my Christian life, especially the second half of it. And I'm going back to some simple things. And this was a song I learned when I first became a Christian at First Baptist Church of Atlanta under Charles Stanley. Unfortunately, he said it all the time right before he gave the tithe, so I got a little bit cynical. Really, they would literally say that. I believe in tithing, there was that, I believe in tithing, you know, something like that. But the point I'm saying is that, that, that it's really true, though. You know, God's intended for you, tension there is happiness, not misery. And so think about it, whether you're old or young here, 
what are those things that God's been pricking your heart about? What are those conscience things that you've been, you know, I'm feeling com- comfortable about this in my life. Ow, I know, it hurts. What are those things? Wow, we got a domino going up there. It's all right. I think it's been taken care of. Don't worry. Um, but what, what, what are those things that, that, you're, that you're struggling with, your sins, you're being convicted about? Well, I think part of what is hard for us is we just can't trust that it really is hurting us. And yes, it's offending a God who loves you. Because ultimately underneath every sin is I don't trust you. I'm not listening to you. I'm not willing to act with you. It's rejecting him. This God who bears you on eagle's wings. And so that brings us then to the third observation concerning our mission, our purpose. What is the purpose of our life? Well, as much as we've talked about God's love and as much as we are loved by God and are called here to love him by hearing, listening, and obeying, there is a purpose in our life, and it's not just my purpose is to be loved. There is a being. He's real. He's holy. And our purpose is to glorify him. That's a mission. It says it here that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy city. First Peter paraphrases this perfectly. But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts. There it is again, history. The mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What do we proclaim when we witness? What do we proclaim when we we go out as priests? You see, a priest stands before God in, in humanity. Are you willing to identify with that purpose in life? at your work, at your school, wherever you go, I want to see myself as a priest. You are part of a priestly, holy city called the church. We corporately are the priest. We severally go out in priestly ways into our worlds. Think of yourself and your purpose in life as the most important purpose you have to stand between, to to stand between God and humanity to, to bring God the people and to bring people God. How would you do that? Of course, it, you, you would pray for your humanity in your life. But you would all, also proclaim, it says here, the mighty acts of God, eager to tell them about this incredible, compassionate, loving God who bore them on eagles' wings when he died on the cross for their sins, when he raised up and defeated the enemy of evil for them, and when he has ascended into heaven and even now sends us the Holy Spirit to enable us and to empower us, and that there is a victorious life. Lisa and I, you know, you heard about this tragedy in in Branford. And um, this young family, Lisa is very familiar with this family. They They go to her school that she teaches at. Uh, uh, and and it, it's touched the whole city of Branford uh, very deeply. Many dear friends that we grew up with uh, are been touched. It's I, I, I wish I could call on you, Lisa, to, to tell tell them what they said. Um, I think I, you would want me to do that, but but I, I can't remember all the words. But she was relating to me this, the the service, the the evangelical church that they were part of there, 
um, was part of that as well. And, and, um, but the young, the young boy that she knows in her, I believe it was the older brother, Lisa, of this guy. I mean, she was reading to me the things he said as, Christ, as a Christian young boy. Um, I mean, it, it just defies everything. But here was my takeaway. The power and the strength and the hope and the perspective of the gospel that this young, what grade is he in? Oh, it's the younger brother that said all this. What grade is he in? Okay. It was just amazing. It was amazing. I listened to this, and, and, and it was doing this to the whole city of Branford. This God was, was speaking to this little boy, talking about the hope of the gospel, talking about his brother and, 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 how, and how he understood this whole event in the context of God's purpose. And he said something, I remember, to the effect that, you know, God had a purpose for my brother, and it was a 10-year purpose. And it's been fulfilled. I mean, God. I don't know sometimes if we as a church aren't too sophisticated for our own britches, that we don't appreciate the power of what God's acts in history mean to us and what it would do to us if we would listen to it and think about it and go out as God's people, this mighty, holy city of God, proclaiming, in the words of Peter, the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our purpose in life. You want to know a purpose? It's to be a priest to the nations. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, all the way back to Adam. To be a priest to the nations. To declare the mighty acts of God. Doing it in a humble, contrite, respectful way, but doing it looking for the opportunity to mediate God to the people of your life and people to God who are in your life. And you would do so because you sitting in this room, you know that this is true. Remember who you were, your depth of depravity, your brokenness, your insecurity, your fear of people, your fear of everything. The gospel, and only the gospel can break that fear. And only the gospel, when I, when I listened to that family, or what Lisa related to me about how that family gave testimony to Jesus Christ and the worst crisis Branford has felt in a long time, people we love and grew up with over there. And, and then what does he do? He, he starts a fund. He says, I want to start a fund in his name. They, they did this little Facebook thing and asked for some help, and it got over $32,000. And he says, we don't want it. We're going to give that to, to well, I don't know the cause, but, but this is what Christianity does. And I'm sitting there thinking when I'm listening, oh, I can just hear the cynics around, oh, those, that poor kid, he's been duped. He's not really dealing with it. He's in re- denial. He's in the, I can just hear all the cycle babble right now. You know, the gospel defies logic sometimes. Now, I'm sure there's going to be continued grieving and continued issues and ups and downs. That's not my point. My point is, are we afraid to really believe that they are truly, in the words of Scripture, mighty acts of God? that can create a mighty, big witness. And yet, too often than not, we're afraid of those who are broken 
without hope. And so that brings us to here in the final observation. We've gotten to three of the observations about our, this God's disposition towards us, our disposition to God, and, and then what we, are, would, what we are to do to experience the fullness of that happiness by hearing, by trusting, by obeying. The passage ends with a very ominous moment, though. Did you notice that? So the people all answered as one. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, hear those words this way. We've run out of time, so I'm going to do it brief. That's exactly what they should have said. That is exactly the, the feeling, the response, the thought, everything, everything. That's exactly what they should have said. So we're not going to diminish. There's nothing in this passage that at all rebukes them for what they said. Nothing. But why then the, hmm, why then the need for a bit of a timeout, which I have longer here, but we won't do it. Well, let me summarize it because we all know what happens. They fail miserably. <laughs> over and over and over and over again, they fail miserably. And so it raises questions. And, and again, I was going to raise the questions, but I don't want to raise them now. We can do it downstairs if you want. It'd be a good thing to talk about. But where it all will go is that we discover that this whole story is but a foreshadowing, preparatory tutorial type of a story that will eventually bring Israel and all of us to a place of brokenness where our self-reliance and our self-confidence will be exposed as foolish, wherein we will look for a substitute covenant maker on our behalf. We are looking, by the time we're through with this story, as Romans 7 talks about, We are looking for someone, anyone, who can set me free from this body of death. Because even the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do do, I don't want to do. Oh, who will set me free from this body of condemnation? Praise be to God, Jesus Christ, is Paul's answer in Romans 7. So that in the Hebrews passage, he reminds them of this moment when under the great clouds of thunder at Mount Sinai, the people vowed with enthusiasm, everything we will do. And he says, and that led to all kinds of disillusionment. And yet we discover that was exactly the purpose. For God was using even the story of Israel in its geopolitical, typological manner that it was being done in a manner that would get us to the place where all of humanity would be broken to the core and say, I beg your mercy. At the core, we discover what it means to hear, trust, and obey. And it leads us to this table. At the core, it says, I put myself in your mercy, Jesus Christ. I trust what you promised. You promised me salvation. You said if I knock, you, you would open the door to me. You said that I am the salvation, the life, the bread, everything. I trust you. I put myself in your mercy. And what we discover is that Christ accomplished what Moses even couldn't, as great as he was. 
for he came to the, to the end of the journey before he entered the promised land as a type that all humanity would except that Christ would come, fulfill the promise, the oath, in a manner that you could enter into that journey. So that what does it mean to trust and obey today? Well, you will trust, first of all, that you'll be considered as someone who trusts if you'll trust in Christ to trust for you. Did you get that? That you will be considered as someone who is trusting and obeying God if you will trust in the one Christ to execute that vow for you. And that's what he did. And then, because now we are already the treasure of God by virtue of that new, righteous, trusting relationship with God in Christ, you will endeavor for the rest of your life to act out the actions of Christ's trust through your own body. You will live more and more seeking to trust him and obeying him. That's the Christian life right there. It's unbelievable. We love, as we sang today in the song, because he first loved us. This sacrifice is taking the penalty of rejecting God that we deserve. And this sacrifice led to his resurrection and conquering of the very sin that's in us with a power that that little nine-year-old or whatever-year-old boy evidently has experienced. A power that stood to the nation's and proclaimed the mighty acts of God as his brother was dead. I want that power, and I want you to have that power. We need to pray for that power. Amen.